it has to be felt. It's not intellectual. If it's not felt in the body, in our feelings, in our, you know, in our sense, of, in our whole self, then it just becomes another intellectual exercise. Welcome to the Wild Minds podcast for people interested in health, nature-based therapy, and learning. We explore cutting-edge approaches that help us improve our relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. My name is Marina Robb. I'm an author, entrepreneur, forest school, outdoor learning, and nature-based trainer and consultant, and pioneer in developing green programs for the health service in the UK. You're listening to episode one, The Four Shields of Human Nature. Betsy Perlis is our guest on episode one of the Wild Minds podcast. Betsy is a leading wilderness rites of passage guide and trainer, a depth psychotherapist, practicing deep ecotherapy and helping people to apply the natural world for therapeutic processes. In this episode, Betsy helps us to reimagine ourselves as intricately interwoven with the world beyond our skin. She explains the four shields of human nature, the body, psyche, mind and spirit, and the value of seeing and experiencing a bigger reality. We explore words like ego and the unconscious and what happens when our ego is defeated. We debate how can we begin to live in a not-so-human-centric way. Tune into the episode by hitting play or reading the transcript below. Hi, Betsy, and welcome to Wild Minds. I'm so grateful that you're calling in from California and being with me tonight. So thank you. Thank you so much for coming. It's an absolute delight. I always start with gratitude. I think it helps me arrive and it helps me center. So if you wouldn't mind, I'm going to share a little bit of gratitude. And then if you want to, I'd love for you to do that too. So um, for me, you know, I'm grateful for the water. And I'm particularly thinking of water in a swimming pool at the moment, because I've been doing a little bit of swimming this winter and it's just really helped me. And I'm just so grateful that I have this chance to go in and sometimes go under the water. And after swimming a little bit, my mind slows down. So I'm going to just say um, I'm grateful for, for that. And I, and I just did that a little bit earlier. So that's why it's in my mind. So thanks to the water. Beautiful. I would have to say the same thing. Water, you know, as we were mentioning earlier, California just broke record for the most snow in recorded history. And while there's, you know, some disaster around that and tragedy, there's also a lot of water. And it reminds me just how precious water is. Um, and to have it in so, so much abundance right now, there's an element for me anyway of just promise, of moisture, of spring flowers are starting to come up as well. And 
super blooms, you know, across the state, even in the desert. So my, my gratitude is also for water. Mm. Yeah. It makes me think that I guess I'm starting to be able to remember different years in my mind. Like last year in England, it was so dry um, at this time of year and the leaves hadn't composted yet, you know, and now it's been so wet and it really changes the landscape. So yeah, yeah, water. And we have the flowers now. I can say, I guess we're maybe a little bit ahead of you and I have to say it feels good. <laughs> so, um, you know, I'm really delighted to have you here because I, I met you on a, on a trip that I took to California um, on this kind of journey into the wilderness, I guess, um, to really try and learn a little bit about uh, this I, this model of, this four shields models of what it is to be a human. And I just, I understand that you've, you've actually been involved or sharing these teachings for a long time. Is, am I right? Something like from 1995, you first encountered these models. Is, um, is that correct? Yeah, I I actually um, first heard of the School of Lost Borders, the organization that I'm affiliated with, in 1995. Um, I didn't actually attend a program at Lost Borders until 98. Okay. It took me a couple of years to to muster up the courage because I I didn't really know what Lost Borders was about at the time and. Previously, I'd never been exposed to anything like Lost Borders. So when I finally did make it, um, I immediately fell in love with the people and the form and the philosophy. Mm. But am I I also right that it wasn't, um, well, you seem to have so many strings to your story. Mm -hmm. I'd love you just to share what is what is deep psychology? That's a big question. What is, is deep psychology? Yeah, um, we can go back to you know the early works of um, Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung, who and others, many others, who pioneered th- this psychology that focused on the unconscious. And being deep basically means being below the surface of our conscious awareness. And um, from that, you know, developing a psychology where um, we understand that how we perceive ourselves, how we perceive the world is a surface layer of mostly ways that we've been enculturated, socialized, um, you know, by family, by school, by society, to see the world around us. But the majority of so-called reality is below the surface. It's in the depths, it's not seen. And I love the metaphor of deep. Um, I mean, it gives us a sense of going downward, obviously. I mean. Um, But if we think about it in terms of what we know about deep, it would be underneath the surface of 
the ground. It would actually be maybe underwater or, or below, um, you know, the surface layer of the soil. So it's, it's there. We know it's there. Um, our whole life is built upon it, and yet we can't see it in the same way we see things that are on the surface. And so it doesn't, you know, what's deep or what's in the depths doesn't necessarily um, match our conscious understanding of things. And so when we encounter material from the depths, it usually shows up in ways that doesn't necessarily make sense to our rational mind or our normal perception, such as dreams, for instance. You know, dreams show up in very odd ways with um, images that you wouldn't expect to see in ordinary reality. And yet it's a phenomena that's true. I mean, here it is. Um, you can't deny that the dream showed up and presented itself. So it's the matter of, you know, learning how to understand the language of the deep so that we can broaden our consciousness to, um, you know, a greater sense of reality or wholeness that's not so narrow focused. And modern society has really narrowed the focus you know, modernity where um, basically there was so much emphasis on our capacity to, to use our rational mind, which is in so many ways so wonderful. And at the same time um, has cut off so much about what's in the depths. Um, what we don't see, um, it's cut off our intuition, it's cut off our sense of feeling, and in a large part, our bodies and um, our relationship with the more than human in the natural world. And I think that's what we're going to be talking about is, um, you know, nature in the modern world has become a material item to that we can scientifically study and measure and, and do all kinds of wonderful things with, but we've lost that deeper kind of connection um, with it. You know, it doesn't really speak to those of us in the modern world in the same way that it has in our ancient past. You know, when we use terms like depth psychology I can feel a part of me almost worrying that I don't understand it just just bear with me you know I don't understand what we're talking about in the sense that I feel like um in my everyday experience I, I have feelings I have different thoughts I I wonder I have so much I don't understand and I wonder how does does, does depth psychology provide a different lens or a way of looking at what it is to be human in that way? Is that, is that a way of seeing it? Absolutely. I mean, for lack of better words, we have these psychological words like ego and the unconscious. Um, but if you think about the ego um, as a small circle in the middle of a much larger circle, you know, the, the ego, our, our consciousness, 
is that smaller circle and it thinks it knows everything. And that's the, the troubling part about the ego is that it, by its very nature, it considers itself to be the core of all knowledge. And, and we need our, we need our ego, you know, in order to function in the world. But when it becomes the center of the universe, then we don't see anything else around us. We don't see the bigger reality. We don't see that there's so much more. And so it takes a, a relativization of that ego and the work of depth psychology and deep ecology is to shift the ego out of the center so that it's not, you know, the king of the hill. It's not the end all of everything, but it's, you know, one perspective on many. And, you know, in terms of nature, um, you know, humans, we know we live in a human centric society where humans are, have been, at least in Western society, but humans have been considered the most important most knowledgeable, most reasonable, only conscious species on the planet. And that's because that ego is just like so solid, rigid right there and thinking it is the, the king of the hill. But what we're learning or relearning, I should say, is, is that's not true at all. We're us humans are one species amongst many with equal value. But that's a that's a defeat for the ego, right? Because yeah. wow, now I, I need to put other species and the environment and the ecosystem on an equal plane, if not a, as more important right now to mm. compensate for the damage that we've done. Mm. Are you ready to elevate your forest school skills and breathe new life into your sessions? Don't allow doubt to hinder your exploration of outdoor learning's potential. Without proper direction, young people may miss out on nature's profound impact. Imagine confidently guiding your groups through parks or green spaces equipped with essential skills. Explore theoutdoorteacher.com slash Forest School for my premier online training in forest school activities and begin your path towards becoming a skilled outdoor educator today. And don't forget, if you're in the UK, you have the opportunity to experience the wonders of nature firsthand at one of our direct trainings in Sussex. Dive into the details of our in-person courses at circleofliferediscovery.com. Is there something about, because um, I'm thinking about consciousness and, and in, in, in my experience, it's the things I'm, let's say, aware of. Um, mm -hmm. So is there something about how do we make or, or how do we have a greater relationship with the other aspects so that we're, we're not just living our lives through this, let's say, this center point where we're somehow able to widen because I'm wondering, how do we, what are the tools, like what are the things that help us 
I suppose, have a wider lens or operate Mm -hmm. not just from this fixed place? Wonderful question. Yeah. So your question is, how do we, how do we, you know, decentralize the ego? How do we begin to live in um, a way that it's not so human centric? And um, I was saying there's two ways. One is to do it in a way to be forced to do it. Um, And the other is to consciously turn toward it. When I say when I say forced, um, for instance, when people come into psychotherapy, most often they come because they're having symptoms, um, depression, anxiety, relationship problems, trauma-related issues, and that symptom is an indication that something other wants to be acknowledged or tended to. The way I work as a psychotherapist, I follow the symptom because I believe it's a sign from the unconscious saying, there's some work to be done here. Um, The way you've been living your life, the way you have been functioning is not working anymore. It's too narrow or one-sided. So the unconscious gets our attention <laughs> through sure does. Dis- through disturbing symptoms. And it kind of has to be disturbing because if it's not, we tend to ignore it. Um, I think that's happening on a global scale as well with climate change, climate chaos, social unrest, um, cultural disintegration. All these are symptoms on a larger scale that are demanding our attention. And if we ignore them, they're just getting louder, right? And that's, Absolutely. they're getting really, really loud. And mm. so um, that's one way. I think it's preferable if we can consciously turn our attention and say, we know enough to know that there's more to this life than I can fully understand rationally. And how, and this is why people come to School of Lost Borders for one example, I want to connect deeper with myself and with nature and with others. So let's consciously turn our attention in that direction. And let's listen for what we don't know. And I think listening goes a long way. So that's why when people come to a program like the one you attended, the Four Shields program, our, our first move is to send you out on the land and listen um, deeply, not just with your mind, and, but with your body, with your soul, with your spirit. Listen. Even though what you hear, you might not understand. And then bring that back to the community and share your experience, share your story and have that reflected back. And together we begin to interpret what what this all means. And in that practice, there is a deepening of relationship. 
not just with humans, but with the more than human. Yeah, but now, now you're talking about something that for me was extraordinary. You know, I mean, I've I've been in, I've gone out into nature and practiced in nature and taken groups into nature for thirty years, so I'm not a novice, right? But it was extraordinary to be in that group with you and um, others in that way, and and I think. You know, this, and I can feel my energy rising just even remembering it in my body because um, there was something about the process of going out onto the land and then coming back from the land with a story and a story that in some ways, from one perspective, Hero was just telling you what happened, Yeah. And then to have this, um, to have you and others reflect back to me and see things that I couldn't see or hadn't consciously, let's say, seen, and and also to do it with with in a way that uplifted me, and it and and it was gave me a way of seeing something and 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 I I mean I know that you you're coming to England next year <laughs> and I am jumping on that workshop right because um because it was something that wasn't you know clearly your skill clearly you've got years of experience in in personally doing it and also doing it for others but there was there was this magical I'm going to say, I don't even know if it's a word, imaginal thing that happened that was, you know, you couldn't, I couldn't, you can't explain it. You can't, it's, the words won't do it because it was an experience, right? It, it, and yeah, I'm fascinated by, and I, and I understood it to be called like mirroring as well, right? But, but um, what is this magical quality that, or do you know, how to explain is is it possible to explain <laughs> this magical thing that happens i mean how do you how do you can you explain to me how that <laughs> happened for every single one of us you know something magical happened um between ourselves and the natural world between the uh, these unseen forces and coming back to the community and having you and others mirror What's going on there, really, Betsy? What's going on? I love the question. I feel like it's been my life's work trying to answer that very question, you know, trying to articulate what that is. Um, in context to what we've been talking about, I, I do believe that the ego just gets really tired of itself. Um, I, I think we get dried out um, and you know, we lose our sense of um, connection and, you know, if we're working, living out just simply from an ego place. So to have that experience is like to, to all of a sudden the veil gets pulled away and we see that it's not about us. I mean, it is about us. It's our story. But it's not just about us. It's us in, you know, as part of a much larger whole. And that is a, 
an incredible experience. And I'm so glad you you talked about your experience, you know, in our program because it has to be felt. It's not intellectual. Um, if it's not felt in the body, in our feelings, in our, you know, in our sense, of, in our whole self, then it just becomes another intellectual exercise. And so when the ego can step aside and enter into this larger realm of experience, it can feel quite numinous. You know, it's like, you know, I hate to use religious language, but in, in a way it almost feels like, you know, God having an experience of something bigger than ourselves. It's not, a, you can't um, rationalize that because it doesn't feel like one plus one equals two. It feels like, you know, I had a, suddenly there's, like, I just remember this. I still remember not, not, well, for me, I don't know if you remember because you must have so many groups, but for me, well, one story that I've always held very close to me is the story of jumping mats that I was told as a 24-year-old. So it was very, you know, quite young, quite impression. Uh, it was very impression, that's not even a word, but it doesn't really matter. That story has stayed with me. And, and there I was going off along this landscape and it felt like I was reliving a bit of jumping mouse and so you know you couldn't have made that up right I couldn't you know it just it happened and there was something this sense of interconnectedness which I think we're speaking to um somehow and I want to I mean I I want to rationalize I want to understand it I want the rule book you know part of me wants to do that and yet I really feel that I, I just can't and it's just not going to be able I'm not going to be able to do that I just have to be okay with that experience <laughs> you know the way it is and not try to figure it out and and mm -hmm. I've read in some of your things that you've written um on your website which by the way I will put on the you know the our website and link to that you know you, you said something like um uh thinking with your heart <laughs> is is not um I don't even know what you said actually the end of the sentence but it made me think that in a way it feels like we're we're keep coming back to us we're we're using or being with different aspects of what it is to be alive and that's that's providing a whole different experience does that am I making sense completely one of the problems and in, in modern in the modern world is there's been such a privileging of mental what's the word you know that rational capacity mm. to intellectualize mm. and if we can't somehow intellectualize something it doesn't it's not valuable it's not doesn't have value but there's so many different ways of knowing i mean there's body knowing there's instinctual knowing, intuitive knowing, there's heart knowing. And so, you know, we, it, we need to give value to those as well. Like, I, you know, what does it mean to know something? Is it to, to just 
understand it or is it to know it intimately like you would know a lover, you know, to have that knowledge of somebody. It's, you know, you don't just know about them. You know them. Yeah. <laughs> You've experienced them on so many different levels. And I think that's the knowing that we're trying to cultivate, you know, in yeah. our teachings and in our practices. And that's why I love that the four shields model or the four, the, you know, what we might call the the wheel of life because it includes, you know, the body. It includes what we call soul or psyche, which would be more of that dreamscape, the mythic realm. It includes the rational mind because that's part of who we are. And also as a sense of spirit and our connection to the divine, um, which how do you put that into words, you know, but anyone I know who has been awed by, you know, an incredibly beautiful sunrise would say it's like experiencing the divine. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that experience of our lives in the world over hundreds and thousands of years has been somehow translated into the experience of divinity. Mm. And there's something that that model, I mean, I know that, first of all, that we're going to just touch on this. Uh, oh, gosh, we could go for hours just on one aspect of that wheel. But there's something that that's, it speaks to about that in simplicity about balance as well. It's like so... Where am I? Am I only operating from one aspect of myself? Or how is my relationship to these other parts of myself? And, um, yeah, I, I just think it's it's so important. And, and as a kind of, as someone that works with little children and teenagers and, you know, all kinds of different um, people, but also different structures, like schools talks about the holistic person, you know, mm -hmm. and, and yet most of school is dominated by, uh, you know, intellectual achievement, do you know? Um, so this balance feels, feels like such an ancient understanding of ourselves. And, and here we are in 2023, um, and we're still, still, you know, uh, what's the word, esteeming a very, very narrow part of what it is to be human within the natural world, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm. Absolutely. I, I've, I've worked with um, children and adolescents in schools for years, and I, I love working with that population um, because I learned so much. Um, I definitely, I feel like I learned more from the youth than they can ever learn from me, but um, as a counselor in education, um, you know, my job was to help these students do better in school, which often meant behaving better in school. All good things. I mean, I, I think I, I support that. And it has its limitations. So with the young people that I worked with who were especially the adolescent young people um 
it just didn't make sense to them. Why should I do better in school? Like, what's the point? I'm just conforming here and it doesn't touch me. So um, I thought, well, what does? What, what, what's going to resonate with you? And as soon as we brought in myth and creativity and expression, it was all there, you know, they, they, the, that narrow intellectualized, you just learn for the sake of learning perspective was not enough. But if you bring in the mythic part of their lives and what's the meaning of their lives and how do they give form to that, they just flourished. And I think that's part of what we're talking about. Um, and I see that in the nature connection as well, because if you go into nature and nature, you know, we can talk about what that means, but, you know, and if you go into the wild realm, there's so many forms of expression and it's not just about success or about money or relationship. It's, you know, it's, just it's about all kinds of beauty it's about all kinds of gender expression it's about different ways of relating to life and death and it just amplifies the possibilities rather than what children are learning in school sitting in, in a desk in line rows and in, you know very structured mm-hmm. um, mm. So I love that you bring that in because I think kids are wonderful teachers in that, especially when, especially when they rebel. <laughs> it's like, what? yeah, I need to listen to what, what what that's trying to express. I guess the closest I get to understanding sometimes my adult experience of what I described earlier when I came out um, to your training um, is how I experienced those really early years, kids who everything is alive, everything is real, everything's in conversation, this animistic worldview. And I'm kind of fascinated by that, how how we have that, like, and then it and then it goes, apparently. You know, and, and there's no there's something so when they can express that in their way and we can enter that with them, it's it's such a permission, you know, to, to mm-hmm. go into that and so I do agree with you when you think about how much young people can teach us and on all kinds of levels, as, by the way, of course, the elders. I, 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 I want to celebrate the youth, but I also want to celebrate all the stages for sure. Um, but there's something Absolutely. in, yeah, there's something in that they, they have something that, uh, that I think echoes this thing that I was trying to say, this, that, that suddenly everything's alive and we can welcoming it in we can welcome ourselves as part of it um feels very special feels very very special mm-hmm. yeah you know i want to think um a little bit knowing how precious this time is is a little bit about this idea of rites of passage and, and i just want to say that so many of um well my colleagues as well yes we go out into nature we may do these Thing in England we call forest school there could be nature kindergartens camps and all these kinds of different experiences um, some which have a deeper immersion element 
But all through my adult life, I've always considered this idea of rites of passage or going out into the wilderness for longer periods to be kind of like, let's say the cherry on the cake, <laughs> because it's it's something else. And I and I and I wanted I wondered if you would just talk a little bit about this word or of initiation and rites of passage. What is what does that mean? And I understand again this could be ours, but just to give us a flavor of the value or importance of this idea of initiation and perhaps its place if it happens in the natural world. Like what what is that? Yeah, I um rites of passage is simply the marking of a transition from one stage to the next. And um, so we go through that multiple times throughout our life, each person. Most of the time unconsciously, and we don't really fully integrate what that transition is. Say the transition from going from a child to adulthood. And so we have this kind of skewed idea of what it means to be an adult. You know, to be an adult is to own a certain amount of things, to have this kind of money or status. When when you talk about the valuing of elders, really, let's talk about what it means to be a true adult. You know, somebody who is there to be in service to life, in service to the children, in service to supporting the elders. You know, our values have been really skewed without a full awareness of rites of passage and these transitions. And where do they come from? Well, then this is, I think, one of the most beautiful parts about the rites of passage teaching is it comes from our relationship with the natural world. Because if we observe what's happening in nature, we see that it's continually going through transitions. It's not static. And that's what makes nature wild. Um, that it's a living, moving, changing phenomena all the time. And so we see it in, in the changings of the seasons. We see it in the... You know, the waxing and waning of the moon and the tides and everything is always in flux. And it tells us that, oh, well, I'm in flux too. I'm always changing. I'm going through these transitions. So I am nature. I'm not just learning this from nature. I too go through the transitions just as nature does. But as a human, it's a part of my nature to make meaning out of this. this. This natural biological force in me that's constantly changing and growing and developing, eroding um, as we age, making meaning. And that's what the rite of passage helps us to do. It gives us a way of creating a structure and a form to ceremonially make meaning out of this. So that we can, and that's part of this, this providing the sustenance 
to the next generation and to the next generation. Because I think most people could agree we live in a world that's pretty scarce on meaning, true meaning, deep meaning. You know, we have a lot of surface level meaning, but intergenerational meaning. What's my life matter to, you know, seven generations from now? That kind of meaning. Yeah, you said in uh, something that you wrote that we know that there is no lack of evidence that points to the social and environmental diseases brought about by a largely uninitiated adult population. That's a that's a that that you know got got me thinking, right? So if we as as adults are not initiated, you know, it it we we then and I wonder whether it brings us back to the beginning, something around we then get stuck in a particular lens or a consciousness. So we can't, we don't know how to, or we're not in relationship to this other ways in order to really, I don't know, say, hey, come on, we need something different. We need something better. This isn't okay, you know? We're not We're not looking after each other, others, the future generations. Am I, am I on track with that? I think you are, absolutely, because one of the diseases of our time is that we live in an essentially a narcissistic society. And I'm speaking of my society. Um, I know there's others that that would not apply to, but um, where it is, I mean, doesn't just look at billboards and the internet and social media. It's all self-fulfillment. It's all about me. And there's like this void of, you know, this desperate void of trying to feel something to give my life some meaning. And um, even really good um, programs and workshops and teachings um, can't fill that void. (laughs) They can maybe point the direction, but they can't. The void can only be filled through a true initiatory experience. Um, where it's not just about me, but me interconnected and interrelated with the world at large. That's that's big. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. big. And it, as an and his example of that is that like the vision quest, like being able to go and spend time in a natural space, and yeah, maybe not eat. Um, for a period of time, would you say that, amongst other things, could form part of one way to experience some kind of initiation? Yeah, the the vision fast, um, which oftentimes, but not necessarily, includes four days alone out in the, um, solitude with no shelter, no food, um, and that's just one one model there's you know people are bringing different models in all the time that i'm very open to but there's something about being out there alone that accentuates that sort of crisis of meaning or that sense of the what am i doing here what i don't have all the distractions around me because not eating really is about avoiding distractions it's not about self-punishment um I don't have 
you know, the things around me that offer me the usual comfort. And so it can really bring up that sense of aloneness, which can serve as a portal to great connection. Mm. You know, people come often to do a vision fast, wanting to make life easier or to solve a problem or to come up with, you know, a plan, you know, for their future. And we say, well, you know, it's not really about that. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's it's okay, but um, you might actually encounter something quite different. Mm. And um, for a while, your life might even get more challenging and more Mm. difficult because what what we hear you're really longing for is to live more authentically, more true. And that is most often requires a stripping down of what we kind of think we should be or what people projected on us to be and to like, what is my life path really? What is my life about? Um, Oh, that, that can make it challenging. Yeah. Oh, Betsy. So if people would like to find out a little bit more um, about your work, about the work of Lost Borders, about coming to England. Um, yes, you're coming to England, I hope. Um, what, can the can they go to? Yeah, that's the plan. Um, can they go to the website? I mean, I'll put everything on our website as well, but it, it, would you like to just share anything where where they can find you? I think the most useful website would be the schooloflostborders.org. And just in saying that, I also want to pause and give respect and gratitude to Meredith Little, Mm. um, the co-founder of the school, who's still very much involved and supports the work. And her deceased husband, Stephen Foster, they co-founded the school together and um, started a a beautiful movement in this modern day rites of passage work. So there's more about that um, on the website. And then I have my own personal website, which is simply my name, BetsyPerlis.com. And I will be posting um, programs and whatnot on that website. As far as coming to England, um, the tentative dates um, (laughs) are, well, um, Ishra Goodall and myself are organizing a marrying training um, to take place on May 20th. Oh, I'm getting that down now. Listen, everybody who's listening, I've got that date written down. I'm gonna make sure I get in contact and book on and I'll put that on the website. Betsy, I know you have to go because I know your car is getting packed to go to another place to hold spaces like we've been discussing. And yeah, what can I say? Just huge gratitude to you, to the work that you're enabling in the world and to everything that supports you to do that. So thank you so much and uh, see you, I hope, soon. And definitely you're welcome on this island that we have here. Thank you, Marina. I I really, really enjoyed this and so appreciate your questions and your presence and the way you held this space. It was really 
a wonderful experience. So thank you. Much gratitude to the work you do. And the work you do in your in your own forest school as well, which is beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Wild Minds podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and want to help support the podcast, please subscribe and leave a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Your review will help others find the show. Thank you again for speaking to us, Betsy Perlis. To stay updated with the Wild Minds podcast and get all the behind the scenes content, including show notes and links to Betsy Perlis's website, you can visit theoutdoorteacher.com or follow me on Facebook at The Outdoor Teacher UK and LinkedIn Marina Rob. Join me next week as we take a closer look at nature-centric models and consider how this could support our life and work practices. Until next time. Have you ever wondered about the guitar music in my podcast? Well, it's actually my husband, Jeff Robb. Jeff's touring England and Wales with the music of trees, blending woodland-inspired music with stories about trees. Catch him in May, June and July. Details and tickets at jeffrobb.com slash shows.